there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. One of the things that esoteric teachings and religion and disciplines always seem to attract, always seem to get mired down with, bogged down with, is hair splitting. People who want to take hairs and split them, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Is it cloud or clouds? When you look at it, you think, well, if you're not doing it, you look at it and you're, you're not identified with it and you're objective, you're standing apart from it, you're not in it. If you're outside of that, those two forces that are facing off, you look at it like, that's pretty absurd. If you're in it, you can't see that. But actually, there's a certain amount of hair splitting that is necessary for understanding's sake. In order to understand, we do have to have a language. And there are certain things that we need to define so that we, when, we, when we use a word, we know what it is we're talking about so that we can agree on something so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we want to turn it. The problem is, is that the intellectual center takes this way too far. When I say the intellectual center, what I mean is our intellectual center. In our condition, our intellectual center is governed more by formatory apparatus than it is by anything else. And formatory apparatus is like a huge pendulum inside the intellectual center that swings from one extreme to the other, from yes to no, from hot to cold, from light to dark, from black to white. That is generally what we, in our condition, call thinking. Now, I know that when I talk, there, there, there are some people who think, well, he's talking about them. No, I'm talking about us. Well, are you talking about yourself, too? Yes, I'm talking about myself, too. Well, if you don't have an intellectual center, I didn't say we didn't have an intellectual center. I said, for us, what the intellectual center is for us is where we have our center of gravity. Where we have our center of gravity, most of the time, is in the formatory apparatus, that part of the intellectual center. Okay, that's how we use the intellectual center. Or I should say that's how we misuse the intellectual center. The problem is, is that people imagine that they don't do that. You, you can see them doing it. You can give them examples of how they do it, but it doesn't matter because unless they can see it. You see, it's like, let's say there are three people and two people are arguing over a point. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? 2,427. No, 2,428. No, it's 2,427. I've counted them myself. No, it's 2,428 because a great saint counted them. And he was more conscious than you. And he knew this other great saint. And he knew this other great saint. And he knew this other personage, the son of God himself in the flesh, knew him, talked to him, was one of his disciples, and it was passed down, this 2,428 angels dancing on the head of a pin was passed down from the hand of God himself. It was written down by God himself on this stone. Now, the stone has since been lost, but it was passed down to this great saint who passed it down to this, and my teacher told, handed this down directly to me. So it's 2,428. 
And you'll see these two people arguing like this. You're standing on the outside of this going, who cares? How, and this helps me how? See, but you're on the outside of it, so you don't know why it's important. You're not in the energy. There's an energy field of those two people locked there in this formatory situation, in, in, the, in the formatory apparatus, swinging back and forth. They're locked into this. And it's like being on a seesaw. Where do you find seesaws? Playgrounds. Playgrounds, yes. And you see that what we make of religion, what we make of esoteric schools, what we make of all these things is simply playgrounds. They're not workshops. They're not places where we actually change ourselves. They're playgrounds. And we use the tools, we use the words, we use the doctrines, we use the teachings as toys. And we go back and forth with them. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? 2,427 or 2,428? Well, it depends. Are they male angels or female angels? Oh, well, there are no male and female angels. Oh, now I beg to differ with you. My teacher told me. And in this school of thought, there are men and there are male. And we can scripturally prove this because the, 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 the sons of God looked at the daughters of men and they saw that they were hotties. So they started to get married. And that's where giants came from. Says so right there, black and white's proved. And this nonsense goes on and on and on and on and on for thousands of years. And what gets done? Nothing. Well, that's not true. People get to play in the playground. They get the seesaw. They get to swing on the formatory apparatus. They get to go back and forth on this pendulum. And if you ever say anything like, well, have you ever thought of maybe applying some of these principles to your own life? Well, you have to study to show yourself approved. You have to divide correctly the word. You have to know this. You have to do this. You have to constantly seek for new understanding. Really, when do you apply the old understanding that you've had for the last 2,000 years? Well, I've already applied all that. Yes, I've already applied all that, and that's what gave me this great insight into how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That's what's more important now. Because all this other stuff I've already done and I'm already doing. Here's the deal, people. We are not what we imagine. Now, I know that sounds so simple. We are not what we imagine that we are. Well, of course I know that. Everyone knows that. Of course I know I'm not what I imagine. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, I, I'm not what I imagine. That I'm not as, you know, I'm not as, I'm not, I'm not as smart as I think I am. I'm, I'm not as nice as I think I am. I'm, I'm not as... Uh, you know, I'm not as awake as I think I am. Really? Is that what that means? Yes. You know, it's, it's generally, yes, that's general. I don't want to get into any specifics, mind you, because all my attention is on how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. So I don't have much attention left to see that I am not what I imagine myself to be. How convenient is that? All my force was used up figuring out how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. I didn't have any left to find out that I am not what I imagine myself to be. But why should I find that out since I already know that? Yes, we acquiesce intellectually to that. Well, yes, of course, I, of course I'm not what I imagine. This is clear when we look at others. I know you do this. I know you look at other people and you just go, ah, <laughs> he actually doesn't know what he's like. She actually doesn't know what she like, she's like. I mean, we look at them and we just, we kind of like, oh, come on. How can they not see that? You know, we hear them say something and we think, you know, that's you. And they don't know it. They don't know that what they're ranting about, what they're, like, like I'm ranting now. They don't know that what they're ranting about is exactly what it is that they're doing. But you see, when I catch myself ranting like this, I got to laugh. I got to laugh because I think, 
You know, this is exactly what you do. This is exactly what you do. Ow! That's not very nice. Take that back. But I can't take it back because it's me talking to me. It's one side of me talking to the other side of me. It's one part of me talking to the other part of me. And it's like the part of me that sees it and laughs, it's not all upset. It's like, look, it's okay. It's okay that you don't see this, but you can see it. It's possible to see it if you, if you, if you just look at it. It's okay if you look at it. It's okay if you don't look at it. It's up to you. When we look at other people, we know that they are not what they imagine themselves to be. We look at ourselves and it's, it's a general thing. Oh yes, well of course I, I realize I'm not what I imagine I am. But we can't get specific about it. But we can get very specific about other people and how they are not what they imagine themselves to be. Now, when we can apply that kind of specificity to ourselves, then I think we're actually doing this work. It takes a fat lot of non-identified self-observation to begin to see this about ourselves. And this is called the first line of work. Now, it's a fat lot of non-identified self-observation. It's not a fat lot of self-observation, which is really introspection, where you're just looking at yourself going, It's not that. That's what we all do naturally. I mean, we, we are all so good at that. How many fingers are pointing back at you when you're pointing the finger at someone else? Three! I'm a terrible person. Oh, flog myself to death. You know? It's like, or we can't stand the agony of that, so we say, shut up, it's all your fault. You know, and then we just open our hands so that we make sure all our fingers are pointing at someone else. You know, that's our answer to things. And it's really crazy, but it's what we do, and, and we need to see it. We need to see it's what we do. It's not what other people do. It's what you and I do in subtle ways because we're very, very clever. Very clever. False personality is very clever, and it has this very powerful, strong survival instinct. Life divides people through judgments, hatreds, disliking, all those things. You know all those things that divide you from people, all those things that separate you. And that prevents us from doing the second line of work. Life prevents us from doing the second line of work because life, life stands between us and the work. Life is the neutralizing force. And until we can make the work the neutralizing force, life will stand between us and this work. And life divides people. You don't have to look at a lot of history. Take a hundred years and see if you can find any division. See if you can find any discord, war, in disharmony. See if you can find any inequality. Well, it's, it's absurd, isn't it? It's so, our history, our last hundred years is so full of that in so many different ways that it's just, it's ridiculous to even think about it. I mean, it's just a laugh. It's so clear that that is our history. Now, that is the history of the world. That is the history of our race, our, our humankind. That is what we have always done. Because life divides through judgments, hatreds, dislikings. The first line of work must come first or we'll never do the second line of work properly. What does it mean to do the second line of work properly? Well, let's say what it means to do the second line of work wrongly. We'll be more familiar with that. Doing the second line of work wrongly. Why? Well, why focus on the negative? Because if I focus on the positive, your imagination will instantly say, oh yes, I do that. You will imagine that you're doing the second line of work. But if I begin to show you how the second line of work is so easily done wrongly, Perhaps you'll be able to approach observing yourself in an unidentified way and start to look for maybe what you do like that. Well, what we criticize in another exists also in ourselves. And what do we say to that? Yeah, right. 
That's not at me. I don't do that. I was talking to somebody the other day. They were talking about their wife. They said, she stays in bed and she doesn't do this and she never wants to do anything and she doesn't do this and she doesn't do that and she doesn't do this and she doesn't do that. And I said, uh-huh. He said, well, I just can't see how that's in me. He doesn't stay in bed and he does get up and he does do this and he does do that and he does do this and he does do that. He's a doer. And I said, well, perhaps it's because you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Well, how could that be? There is no other perspective. This is the only way to see it. And people, this is what we do. We think that our way of seeing things is the only way that it could be seen. We can't even conceive of another point of view. Why is that? Because we're totally identified with our point of view. We take it for granted. We're so totally identified with it that we can't even imagine another point of view. I said, okay, well, uh, let me imagine another point of view for you. She doesn't do and you do. That's right. Okay, then perhaps you could tell me the difference since... That's just two sides of one coin. It's called the doing coin. The doing, not doing coin. She doesn't do and you do. That's the coin. All of a sudden he got this look on his face like, oh, and he saw. There was this, just a little shift, but he saw that there was a possibility that this really was one thing and he was only seeing one side of it. But there was another side of it. Because you see, you can't have doing unless you have not doing. What is doing all the time? Well, it's nothing. If it's if doing is all there is and not doing does not exist, then doing is nothing because it's everything. And everything, of course, is nothing because there's no opposite. So he had to see that in order for him to do, he had to not do at times. Well, but I not do less than she not does. <laughs> and I do more than she does. You know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, so what? So do you do because you have a choice? Well, no, I'm a machine. Okay, so what you're saying is that your machine is better than her machine. Oh, yeah, well, I see what you mean now. And this is how we do, this is how life divides. When we don't get the first line of work right, our second line of work tends to be sentimental, pious, false, because of imaginary I. Could you give me an example of this? How does that fit in your life? How does that fit for you? How, when you don't get your first line of work right, how does your second line of work become sentimental, pious, and false because of imaginary eye? This is where the rubber meets the road on this stuff. I could stand here and talk about this all day. You know that. I know you know that. Because I can tell by the look on your face and you're holding your watch up, smacking it on the... It's still... It's still talking. Make him stop. Yes, I could talk about this forever. But... Couldn't we all? Especially if that will ward off the doing of it. <laughs> but what I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to do it. I'm asking you to actually apply this right now. When we don't get the first, our own first line of work right, our second line of work becomes sentimental, pious, and false because of imaginary I. How does it do that? Observe yourself right now and tell me how does it do that? Can you see how you do that? If you can't see how you do that, what good is this? We go back to the seesaw with how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin. Okay, here's how it works for me. No, I'm not going to tell you how it works for me. You're going to tell me how it works for you. I can turn the recorder off and we can just wait for an hour. We'll do that? Okay, just turn this off. We'll be back. Hold on. We're back. And I'll just give you a short recap of everything that went on. The question was, when we don't get our first line of work right, 
Our second line of work becomes sentimental, pious, and false because of imaginary I. How is it that that happens? And what the group pretty much answered was how they don't do their first line of work properly. But they didn't really answer the question. And how we get, how we get sentimental and pious and false is through imaginary I. Because we didn't do our first line of work properly, we imagine that we are what we're not. And when we imagine that we are what we are not, we get sentimental about what other people are. We get pious about what other people are. Oh, it's just, isn't that just so bad? I mean, I feel so sorry for that person. Well, or we get pious. Well, that jerk, all he had to do was this. Because we imagine that that's what we did. We imagine that that's what they should be able to do. So we get pious. I'm not like them. I'm not like those sinners. I'm not like those miserable people. I would never do anything like that. It's false. So our second line of work then becomes false. We end up being overly kind to people that we hate. We have not properly done our first line of work, so we don't see how despicable we can be. And so when we look at somebody else being despicable, we feel superior to them. We feel better than them. And so we sentimentally are kind to them. We're piously nice to them. It's what people in the world hate about Christianity. People come along knocking on your door with tracks, or they, have you heard about this, and blah, or whatever. And they're not doing it themselves. But they're pretending that they are. And they're pretending that because they're pretending that they are, that they're better than you. Where you feel like you're better than them because at least you're a straight-out sinner. You're a straight-out piece of garbage and you're not trying to pretend you're something else. And this is that pious, sentimental second line of work that people who have not properly done the first line of work bring to this work. This condescending octave, condescending note. So we end up being overly kind to people that we hate. And it's not a good thing for our work. Although, if you'll look at it in a non-identified way, you'll see that it can be quite handy in life. You could become president of the United States, or a senator, or a congressman, or the mayor. You could become somebody with that, if you got that oiled up, because people love that. Don't we? Don't we love to be glad-handed? Don't you love to be loved? Steve said to me one day, well, I just like to be with people who like us and who want to be with us. Really, well, gee, who doesn't? You know, but can you see how vulnerable that makes you? It just makes you so vulnerable. Like, I just want to be with people who are nice to me and who like me and who, and who want to be around me. Yeah, so don't, we, we all do. But that's not the way this world is. Imaginary I and false personality are different in this work. Here's where we split hairs. How can imaginary I and false personality be different? Isn't it the same thing? No, it's not the same thing. Remember, we talked last week about a sword, and the sword is there to divide. We observe, we divide. We separate one thing from another. And that's what we're going to do here between false personality and imaginary I. To understand false personality, we must understand that we have personality, which is different from false personality. Everybody has personality. Everyone has false personality. But we don't see the difference. And we don't see the difference because we haven't made the distinction. We haven't learned how to split the hairs, as it were. What is the difference? Well, personality is something that you have and you need. Everybody has false personality, but not everyone has enough personality to do this work. Now you're beginning to see the difference. Everybody's got false personality. If false personality is all it takes to do this work, well, for a lot of people, that's all it takes to do this work because that's where they're doing this work. In fact, the majority of people who claim that they're doing this work are doing this work in false personality. They have taken this work, this system, and they have applied it 
They have put it in their false personality, and now their false personality is doing the work. And what they become is teachers, and they start teaching other people. Now, they don't always call themselves teachers, but they always are the authority on everything. They're always, you'll always find them on the seesaw splitting hairs. You'll always find them on the seesaw arguing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. So you'll find a lot of that because false personality is very powerful. And this work, if it falls on the wrong place, falls there. And false personality gobbles it up and says, hmm, we can use this. And it does. But not everyone has enough personality to do this work. A good householder is one who has learned something from life how to do something in life in an ordinary sense. He's an electrician or a carpenter or a doctor or a lawyer. Or, okay, well, I'm stretching it there. Um, an electrician or a stonemason. Or, or, I, I look more at people who do manual labor as people who have learned something from life. It starts to get a little hinky when you start to get into the, to the lawyers and the judges and the politicians and the doctors. I know I'm going to take a lot of heat for this because the fourth way is a very, it's intellectually top-heavy. And the reason it's intellectually top-heavy is because it has fallen on false personality. And that's what false personality does with it. It puts it into its intellectual system because it can't be understood emotionally. It can't be felt emotionally from false personality. It can only be understood, and I'm using that word not, as, not in the work sense. I'm using it in a life sense, in an ordinary sense, ordinary sense. Understood, it can only be understood intellectually. But that's where the, the seesawing and the, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin falls into. That's that area. A good householder is one who has learned something from life, how to do something in life in the ordinary sense. So he can build a house, he can wire a house, he can fix a car, he can build an airplane, he can do something. You know, what can a doctor do? Well, a doctor can heal you. Yes, a doctor can. He can set your bone, but he can't heal it. He can set it, and he can, and he can try and keep everything in life from making it worse or getting an infection, but he can't heal it. Only life can heal it. The life in your body, the life force in the body that, is, that has the broken part can heal it. What he can do is remove the things, the obstacles that are there to healing, but he can't heal anything. He's not a healer. See, life is the healer. Now, doctors who forget that are not good doctors. Those of you who are nurses who have worked with doctors like that, you know that those are not doctors you enjoy working with, the doctors who have forgotten that they can't heal. But you love the doctors who, are, who have uppermost in their minds that they cannot heal, that all they can do is try and make the patient more comfortable, try and remove the obstructions to healing, that those guys have their feet on the ground. Those guys can do something. All they are is mechanics with a body. See, they're just body mechanics. That's all they are. Just like a car mechanic or, a, or an airplane mechanic or a bus mechanic. They just fix what they can fix, and they can't fix what they can't fix. And that kind of humility inspires awe in people. Why? Well, because we don't see that very often. That's like, an, that's like a total eclipse. You know, it's like they don't happen every day. You know, you don't see that kind of humility in human beings. So when you do see it, it's like, Wow, everybody stops to look at that. Wow, that's really something. That's rare. A good householder is part of personality and is useful. False personality is pretense. It's unreal. And the work seeks to make it passive. The work tries to make false personality passive. It tries to deconstruct it in order to make it passive. That's the work's purpose with false personality. False personality fights that. It doesn't like that at all.
False personality is the imaginary feeling that we have of ourselves. We've got a death grip on it. And actually, the truth is we shouldn't let go of false personality until we have something else provided for us by the work. And this was Tammy's conundrum. I'm seeing more and more and more and more and more through self-observation. I'm seeing more and more false personality. I'm not real. There isn't anything that's real in me. And we despair. We very easily despair over that because we had imagined that there was so much that was real. We had imagined that we had real thoughts and real feelings and real aims and real intentions and real virtues and real goodness. And we find that none of it is true. It's all false. That our whole sense of ourself is all false. This is a terrifying step. And that's why I say you shouldn't let go of false personality. Look, hang on to it. Hang on to it until you've got something else, until the work starts to make a place in you where you can feel comfortable with something else. Now, you may not always feel comfortable, but it's a place you can go to pass the worst storms of false personality. Because false personality is like a raging hurricane. But once you start to observe it, there is an eye of that hurricane where you can go and everything is still. And that's what this work makes. And you can go there. People strong in false personality often compare themselves with others and they feel better than the others. This is what helps define false personality, this feeling of being better than others. Can you see how this draws a line around false personality? Because what it does is it separates us from others. Mm -hmm. This is the line, this is the dividing line, I'm better than you. So it defines me as separate from you. Very powerful illusion. And is what false personality uses. There are two kinds of people to false personality. Those it likes and those it dislikes. <laughs> but it's all based on what it likes and what it dislikes. We can't make a single black or white hair in our heads, but false personality thinks it can. You know, this is our trap. This is why when false personality is exposed, when we begin to see it, we begin to see that we are not real, that where we put our eggs is not really a basket. <laughs> it's a snake's open mouth. When we see that, it's like, oh no, it's terrifying. False personality thinks, well, that's okay, I can fix that. I'll just change that. And so this is how so many people in this work get sucked in by false personality. They think they can fix themselves. They think that if they just get some more knowledge, the better knowledge, the secret knowledge, the knowledge passed down directly, directly from, I got this directly from Gurdjieff. My, well, I didn't know Gurdjieff, but my teacher who studied directly under Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff gave him this very exercise himself. He handed this exercise down to my teacher and my teacher directly from Gurdjieff directly gave it to me. I know, aren't you in awe? And false personality is in all of this, but I'm not in all of this. And let me tell you why I'm not in all of this. I'm not in all of this because if you got the goods, you got the power. And if you got the power, you got the authority. And if you got the authority, I don't care what your lineage is. I don't care if you got it from the trash man. I don't care if you got it from a white salamander wearing gold glasses, or if you got it from an angel, a black angel who gave it to you in rap. I don't care how you got it. If you got it, you got it. You got the power, you got the authority. If you don't have the power, you don't have the authority. If you don't have the authority, I don't really care who you studied with. I don't care if you are Gurdjieff himself reincarnated. I don't care if you're Jesus Christ. You know how many times I've met Jesus Christ? Well, I spent a lot of time in the New Age movement. I met him at, I can't tell you how many parties. <laughs> I met him one time in the church. He was eating sunflower seeds, and he had all these sunflower <laughs> seeds stuck in his teeth. <laughs> you telling me he was Jesus Christ? 
I said, okay. And then he told me I was one of the apostles. So in other words, I was going to get to be in the club. If I was willing to buy that he was Jesus Christ, then I could be an apostle. It's like, that was, well, well, that's pretty quick rise to power you know that's one good way to get to the top then after he dies maybe then i could be like jesus christ you start to see how this is how this insanity works and i'm supposed to buy this look are you doing it are you manifesting the goodness the kindness the love are you manifesting the warmth the light the power are you manifesting that i don't care what you say i'm not interested in what you write i want to know what you are doing if you're doing that, you don't have to say anything to me about it. I can see that for myself. I can see when someone is loving. I can see when someone is compassionate. Look, I know a Christ when I see one. People on earth get together and try to kill him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's like, what? What? Wait a second. That's not how I would do it. It's like, I would call down the angels and fire and brimstone. And, well, get them. Oh, okay, that's different. But I see all these people calling down the angels and the fire and the brimstone, and in the name of Gurchy, fight! Oh, you know, it's like, come on. Come on, people, wake up. False personality gives us this false reality, making us do things that we'd hate if we had a deeper understanding. Look, I'll tell you right now, I remember each of you. See, I've known each of you for a lot of years. I've seen you do things that you are so ashamed of now. But when you were doing them, you were so proud of them. You were doing the will of God. You know, you were doing this, you were doing that. This was what, and now you look at it and you go, oh. Okay, is there anybody, want, anybody want to call me a liar on this one? Mm -hmm. Good. All the heads, for those of you in the podcast, all the heads are bowed and shaking no. <laughs> no. No, all the heads are bowed. No, just don't even say anything more about it. Forget it. You know, and we know you know, and you will tell him. So just no, we're not going to fight you on this one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Patty says, yeah, I like those pictures with black strips over the eyes. No. <laughs> so you see, when we do have a deeper understanding, we do hate the things that we did, that we were so proud of, that we thought was absolutely right. That's false personality, giving us a false sense of reality. When we're in false personality, we're glued to the outer, to the letter of the law. We're in, what, what does it mean to be glued to the letter of the law? It means we're inflexible. God hates fags. That's glued to one little thing, and it's absolutely inflexible. What about God so loved the world? Well, yes, but that was, wasn't fags. He wasn't talking about fags. It's like, that is insane. And it's that kind of false reality and inflexibility that the false personality takes the system, which is esoteric Christianity, and then it uses it to divide people. It uses it to abuse people. It uses it to do the exact opposite of what the teaching was meant to do. The exact opposite. As we begin to separate from it, from false personality, we stop seeing right or wrong, good or bad, black or white, yes or no. We start to see yes and no. We start to see right and wrong. We start to see good and bad. We start to see hot and cold. We start to see that these two opposites are really just two sides of the same thing. But it's only when we begin to separate from false personality that this becomes clear to us. If we can't believe in greater mind, we have nothing with which to disarm pride and vanity. And if we can't disarm pride and vanity, we cannot weaken false personality. As long as you are proud of yourself and vain, you're going to stay the same. You will not change a thing. You won't. You're going to have to see your nothingness.
You're going to have to start to see your real place in this universe. What you really, the, the, the space you really occupy. Not this false reality that false personality has told you you occupy. You know, the guy who goes around, I hate, God hates fags. I, I just wonder if he's anything like Job, you know. Job was a hotshot boy. He, he had it all together. He knew this and he knew that and blah, blah, blah. And he was, he was telling his friends this and telling his friends that. Then God showed up and he met God face to face. And what did Job have to say? Shutting up here, boss. Shutting up here, boss. I don't know anything. You're the man. I don't know anything. And you know what? I believe that that guy who goes around saying God hates fags, if he ever met God face to face, he would crumble. He would melt. He would dissolve in the compassion and the love of his endlessness. Just the same way Job did. Just the same way anyone who has ever seen their place in relationship to the absolute, to his endlessness. When you see your relationship to him, you dissolve. You melt. You, and there's nothing more flexible than water. <laughs> you know? It's like when you turn to water, you're flexible. You just push. I know, I've been there. Boosh. And those of you who have been there know the feeling of boosh. You just turn to water. Your knees turn to water. Your joints come undone. You're just like boneless. You turn, <laughs> you turn into a boneless chicken. Flop, plop. There's just nothing to you because you see your nothingness. It's a beautiful thing. Why we often cry so much when that happens is because it's such a beautiful thing. I, I, does beauty ever make you cry? Yes, because we're old and jaded. But beauty doesn't make children cry. It just makes them stop and stare and wonder in awe. They haven't seen what we've seen. Beauty makes us cry. And that's a good thing because we need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. We need to be purified. We need to have our minds and our hearts purified. And that's what this work is for, to purify our minds and our hearts. And it's doing it. So weep on. And don't, it, don't let it be that sentimental, pious, false weeping. Let it be the real weeping that comes from seeing your position in the great ray, realizing your nothingness and seeing what a pious fraud you have actually been. <laughs> we must somehow feel our nothingness in relation to the great ray. This emotion helps to balance us so we're no longer seesawing and the hair-splitting exercise of how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin. You get to the point, you take a little child in there and it says, who cares? All I care is that there's one angel, my angel. I don't care how many angels are dancing on the head of the pin. Angels are everywhere to a child because life is wonder to a child. And that child lives in you. And it's just all covered up with overcoats of false personality. And this work is about removing them. Imaginary eye is imagination that we have a real permanent eye. So false personality is this feeling that we have of ourselves. Imaginary eye is the imagination that we have a real permanent eye, that we're always conscious. It's what gives us a false sense of unity. See, false personality couldn't exist without imaginary eye. Imaginary eye supports it. We have this sense of unity. I'm one. This is me. So you can build a whole false personality around that. But you can't build a false personality around multiplicity. Do you see that? There's no way. Well, who am I talking to? <laughs> I don't know. Some eye. Let me look. All right. Who's, who's got the microphone now? You know, who's got the megaphone now? Oh, it's that eye. Oh, it's that eye. It's that pious eye that knows everything. Oh, it's that, it's that it's, oh, it's know-it-all eye. Or it's critical eye. Or it's, um, uh, it's religious eye. Or it's this eye. Or it's that eye. Whatever. That's the eye has got the megaphone. That's the eye that's calling itself me at this moment. False personality can't exist under those circumstances. I like this uh, in Mark chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
the the people who read that today on Sundays, people who read that as a rule, read that as, yes, uh, there were demons that came from outside and they, they got inside this guy. And, and, uh, but the demons can't get me because I'm a Christian. Demons can't get in me. They can get on me, but they can't get in me. Oh, here we are back on the seesaw, splitting hairs. They can't get in me, but they can get on me. Well, uh, tell me something. If you're in a horse and you make the horse run to the left or to the right, is there any difference between being in the horse making it do it or being on the horse making it do it? Who cares? The point is, there is something that makes us do things that we look at and we go, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> what made me say that? I never wanted to say that. Who did that? The devil made me do it. Yeah, the devil made you do it. And who was the devil? Some eye with the megaphone in you. Some part of you that you could not accept and acknowledge as part of you that had total control because it got to work in the dark because you would not turn the lights on and look at it. So you couldn't see where it was going and you couldn't see what it was doing. The work says our being in this state of sleep that we're in is characterized by multiplicity, by lack of unity. Instead, we have imaginary I. We're legion. Our name is legion. Why? Because we are many. But imaginary I says, oh no, I'm just one. But when the truth asks us, when real I asks us, when master asks us, what is your name? We're compelled to answer, my name is Legion, for we are many. False personality is that which gives you unreal existence, attracting unreal things, making you identify with what is not yourself. Imaginary I is the imagination that we are always one. We're always the same person, that we're always speaking consciously all the time. And most of all, imaginary I is the imagination that we can do. You see the difference between false personality and imaginary I? It's not a big difference, but there is a difference. In this work, this work makes a distinction. And the distinction is that false personality is that which gives you an unreal existence, an unreal sense of who you are. And imaginary I is that imagination that we're always the same person, that we're always one, that we're always conscious, and that we can do. False personality and imaginary I must be observed. Try to get behind the imaginary reality to the deeper reality where everything is different. If it was easy, we'd be doing it right now. Everyone would be doing it. If it was easy, it would just fall on people like rain and they would get wet. But how is it that these ideas can fall on people and they don't change? Because it falls on places where it can't grow. It falls on places where it springs up too quickly and has no root. And when some second force comes along, it just scorches it and knocks it down. Or it falls on places where it grows up and it decides, oh, I could use this for life. It falls into the false personality, falls into our system, and we begin to use it to make our way in life. That's the weeds that choke it out. And some of it just falls on the roadside where the ground is packed hard. Nothing can get in there. And the birds come along and eat it. If this was easy, we'd be doing it. As it is, we're generally imagining that we're doing it. How can we be sure? The second line of work can help. If you are doing the first line of work properly, the second line of work can help. If you know someone else who's doing the first line of work properly, it can help to have them say, no. <laughs> no, that's not the way you are. And if you're doing the first line of work properly, when they do that, you receive it. And you receive it in the right place. And that's if you value this work. If you genuinely, sincerely value it. If you've seen who you are, you do genuinely, sincerely value it. See, I'm not afraid of people getting in the state that Tammy was talking about this morning, where 
I don't even exist. I'm nothing. I'm just all false. You have used self-observation to the point where you actually begin to see the truth about you, the truth about your false personality, the truth about your unreality. When you begin to see that, I'm not afraid of that because you will value the work more. You will cling to it more. And when you cling to it more, it will be your rock. It will be, you know, that rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It'll be the truth that protects you. It'll be a place for that little you, that little child, that essence of you to grow and become strong. This work is good stuff. Do it. The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com, to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.